What number is this, Chip? Zilch 127. Monkeys 101 is back with Monkey vs. Machine and Monkey News. Okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I'm Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. Welcome back to Zilch. I'm Ken Mills, your host here today on Zilch. We have an exciting look at the third episode of The Monkees, Monkey vs. Machine, with Sarah Clark and Roseanne Welsh, our two Monkees doctors in residency, with Monkees 101. But first, some Monkees news. On November 27th, Rhino and the Monkees revealed the lyric video for Unwrap You at Christmas, the first single off the new album, Christmas Party, featuring the art of the great Mike Alred. He's a fantastic comic book artist, one of my favorites, and he can draw the monkeys like nobody's business. The video continues in the style of a monkeys comic book, which was used for the video for the 2016 Good Times single, She Makes Me Laugh. Fans are encouraged to subscribe to the Monkees YouTube channel, as it was announced during the live chat leading up to the premiere that there will be two more Christmas videos coming. Also announced that the much-anticipated vinyl version of Christmas Party will drop on September 2019. Yes, you heard that right, 2019 September. The vinyl version was delayed due to the backlog and the handful of vinyl pressing plants remaining in the U.S. Now, with the resurgence in vinyl, are busier than they used to be. You can also get the remix single version of Unwrap You at Christmas available on Amazon as a download. This January, Michael Nesmith will return to the concert stage to perform his classic 1972 album, and the hits just keep on coming, for a series of shows featuring Gisnez and his trusty pedal steel guitarist Pete Finney. These performances will mark the first time Nez has toured in a duo format since 1975 when he worked with the legendary Red Roads. VIP meet and greet packages will also be available in limited numbers. Tickets are on sale now, and here are the tour dates. January 17th, the Neptune Theater, Seattle, Washington. January 19th, the Rogue Theater, Grants Pass, Oregon. January 20th, Sophia Center for the Arts, Sacramento, California. Mike returns to the Troubadour on January 22nd at the Troubadour at West Hollywood, California. January 24th, the Coach House, San Juan Capistrano, California. And January 26th, Sweetwater Music Hall, Mill Valley, California. So if you want to see Mike perform and the hits just keep on coming with Pete Finney, this is your chance. Only a handful of dates. Get out there and see them while you can. Tickets are also on sale for the return of the Monkees Present, The Mike and Mickey Show. In addition to the four shows that were postponed when Nez had his health scare earlier this year, 
The M&M Show, as fans affectionately call it, has added more dates for a total of 12 this coming March. According to tour manager Andrew Sandoval, these are the only dates that this show will offer. So be sure to get tickets now. Tour dates are as follow. March 1st, Chevalier Theater, Medford, Massachusetts. March 2nd, Ocean Resort Casino, Atlantic City, New Jersey. March 3rd, American Music Theater, Lancaster, PA. March 5th, the Count Basie Center for the Arts, Red Bank, New Jersey. March 6th, the Keswick Theater in Glenside, PA. March 8th, the Paramount, Huntington, New York. March 9th, the Beacon Theater, New York, New York. March 10th, the Palace Theater, Albany, New York. March 12th, Royal Oak Music Theater, Royal Oak, Michigan. March 14th, Mystic Lake Casino Hotel, Prior Lake, Minnesota. March 15th, Four Winds Casino, New Buffalo, Michigan. And it wraps up on March 16th at St. Charles Family Arena, St. Louis, Missouri. And zilch buttons will be at every one of these shows. And there's going to be a great big meetup. In St. Louis, it's going to be fantastic. We hope to see you all on the road at some point. So that's pretty much the Monkeys news. We've got some cool shows coming up soon. And uh, we want to thank everybody who helped make the Head 50th button promotion an event. All the buttons are gone, folks. You helped make that possible. And people threw in a little bit extra. And that money is going to go help some people and make some things happen for some needy people. So thank you very much. And now, here's an ad for the Monkees, the complete series on Blu-ray. They actually had some Monkees wrapping paper that you could get. I wish that Rhino would make it so that we could just buy the Monkees wrapping paper, but I know some people would probably just use it as wallpaper at some point. The Monkees, the complete series. All 58 episodes, newly remastered in stunning HD from the original negatives for the very first time. Plus the 1969 TV special 33 and a third revolutions per monkey. Bonus material includes commentaries from all four monkeys, original Kellogg's monkeys commercials, and more. The 1968 monkeys film Head in HD with never before seen outtakes. Unique packaging including a 7 inch single featuring Star Collector back with Going Down in unique TV mono mixes. This collection is strictly limited to 10,000 individually numbered box sets, and once those are sold out, this edition and the bonus disc will never be available again. Everything you loved about the monkeys on TV, it's yours in high def on Blu-ray now. The Monkeys the Complete Series. Go to rhino.com or themonkeystore.warnermusic.com. The Monkeys the Complete TV Series on Blu-ray. And now a special message from Zilch. We want to remind you that the monkeys are people. Same as you and me. They get stuff right, they get stuff wrong. But they've done a lot for their fans over the years, and they deserve both our support and their privacy. The same goes for their family and friends, people who work for them, their touring band, and for our friends at Rhino, 7A, the other companies who bring us the monkeys' fun, and of course, Dino, Jared, Larry, and Marty. Think for a moment before you post and determine whether or not you want someone saying something like that about you or your family. We here at Zilch like to keep things peaceful, friendly, cordial. 
don't mess it up. I'm Tim Powers, and I'm too busy to put anybody down. Today's episode is all about the Monkey's TV show, Monkey vs. Machine, one of my favorites. And back then, this was probably the first time that folks got to hear Saturday's Child. Well, here are the monkeys live from the Bomb Factory in 2016 with Saturday's Child. Hey, wait, 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 wait. He just lifts his arms and you get... All right, then. Today on the show, Dr. Roseanne Welsh and Dr. Sarah Clark are going to talk about the third Monkeys episode, 
Monkey versus Machine. So take it away. Class! Class! It's Monkeys 101! Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows, there's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freebill Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love, to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys, and who knows, at the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Monkeys 101. I'm one of your co-hosts for this little feature, Sarah Clark, and joining me is Roseanne Welch. Woohoo, you mean Dr. Sarah Clark. And Dr. Roseanne Welch. (laughs) (laughs) And we are going to be talking about the third episode of the Monkeys TV series, Monkey vs. Machine, which aired September 26th, 1966. Stan Freeberg stars as a headstrong company man, Daggert, who plans to automate an old-fashioned toy company. So, That's what we call a logline in television. Yeah. Okay, that's what's that called. I didn't know. Okay. It's I just logline. I, I thought it was like a blurb, but yeah. In any case, cool. <laughs> See, I learn, I learn new things every time we do this. Oh, every business has its own vocabulary. Definitely. Yes. I start out by taking a look at this week in history, what was going on the week of September 26th. And on September 26th, the ship Staten Island was the first icebreaker to enter San Francisco Bay. I can't imagine there would be ice in September in San Francisco. Maybe it was just passing through or something. I don't know. Maybe. How yeah, interesting. I don't know. That takes more research now. You're going to make me intrigued. Yeah, I may have to look into that afterwards, but. And then on the 29th, Sandy Koufax pitched his third 300 strikeout season. Very cool. He's actually a name I recognize, and I'm not a huge sports person. Yeah, kind of same here. Also on the 29th, the Chevy Camaro, originally named the Panther, is introduced. Huh? I didn't know it was called a Panther. That's very cool. Yeah, that was a new thing to me. On the 30th, Botswana, formerly Bechuana Land, gains independence from the United Kingdom. Um, I Everything I know about Botswana is from the number one ladies detective agency books, which actually, side note, I highly recommend. They're a lot of fun. Oh, I second that, and I've seen the series that was based on them. I haven't had a chance to watch uh, watch it. Is it pretty good? It is pretty cool. I'm thinking BBC, but now I can't remember where I was exposed to it. But it was really fun. Yeah, cool. Okay. Maybe HBO. Yeah, it was one or the other of those. But I I, I know it's out on DVD, so I'll have to check it out sometime. Cool. Yeah. Also on the 30th, the USSR performed an underground nuclear test. On October 1st, newspaper magnate Thompson purchases the London Times. 
Ooh. Yeah, I know. On October 1st, West Coast Airlines Flight 596 crashes with 18 fatal injuries and no survivors 5.5 miles south of Wemmy, Oregon. This accident mm-hmm. marks the first loss of a DC-9. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've seen several plane crashes as I've been looking through the uh, This Day in History things for the 60s. And it just occurred to me that, that technology has advanced so much that, you know, there are hardly ever plane crashes. It seems like you get one maybe every four or five years these days, you know? That's true. Like you said, technology is advancing and gotten better at those things. Yes, and we'll be getting more into technology in a bit, given the uh, nature <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> yep. And on October 2nd, two interesting bits of sports news. Mickey Wright won the LPGA Mickey Wright Golf Invitational. Okay, I wonder whether it was named that before or after, but hey. <laughs> and then also on the second, L.A. Dodgers Sandy Koufax clinches the third L.A. pennant in four years. Wow. Yeah. I've actually seen Dodger games living here, but not very many. Oh, wow. I've never seen the Dodgers, but I've seen several friends. I, I think like Christian and Cersei have been to some Dodgers games and posted photos of st- stuff at the ball game. So looks like a fun place to see a game. True. I had a very tiny story. When my son was in Little League, we all would go to, you know, a couple games a season. And one year we came out and one of the dads had forgotten where he parked his car. It's such a big parking lot. He Mm -hmm. couldn't find his car. So this is pre-Uber. He was going to call a taxi to have his son taken home and he would just keep looking for the car. And his wife was like, are you nuts? You're not putting my kid in a car with a stranger. Both of you come home and I'll drive you back tomorrow to find the darn car. (laughs) That's awesome. We giggled at that for a while. Yep. So that was what was going on this week in history. And I'll be talking a little bit more about some other historical things a little later on. But why don't you share basic production credits for this episode? Well, you know, I love to do that. So, yes. Interestingly enough, this is the first one we hit on that James Frawley did not direct. It was directed by Rafelson himself. Mm -hmm. I have not discovered why, but I'm going to guess it's because he wanted to hang out with Stan Freeberg. I wouldn't blame him. I wouldn't blame him. Uh, For me, of course, it's always of interest. It was written by a guy named David Panich, who sadly had died in 1983, so I was not able to interview him for the book. But if we look him up, we discover he started on the show That Was the Week That Was, which was the show that Gardner and Caruso came from, although he was on it the year after them. And he also wrote on the Dean Martin show. And I always find that funny because, of course, there was the great rivalry between Dean Martin and the Beatles. And he insisted that he could knock the Beatles off the number one charts. And he did it with his key song, Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. Hmm. And, of course, we'll know as we come further into the episodes that it's his daughter, Deanna, who shows up in Some Like It Lukewarm. Ah. So there's much Dean Martin connection to our guys that we Uh haven't thought about. But also, Panitch then goes on to uh, go with Coslo Johnson, another um, another monkeys writer. They're going to both end up on Laugh In, and they're going to win an Emmy for being part of the Laugh In writing group at that cool. point. And then, sadly, he made the choice to follow Sonny rather than Cher when they broke up. In the Sonny Comedy Review, did not do as well as Cher's particular show did. Um, and then after that, he chose the Hudson brothers, who were kind of mediocrely okay. And mm-hmm. But Bill Hudson is the guy who goes on to marry Goldie Hawn. So oh. she falls into this whole fun era of laughing and everything. Mm-hmm. So he had an interesting career and worked really up until the late 70s and then passed away in 83. Okay. Neat. Cool. And of course, Stan Freeberg, in terms of guest stars, we know a lot about him. He was so interesting because he started out in advertising. And I remember one of his most famous ads, which was for Contadina Tomato Paste. 
And it was basically you'd see a bunch of tomatoes slamming toward this can, which was very tiny. And the, the jingle was, who put eight great tomatoes in that little bitty can? Who is it that puts eight great tomatoes in that little bitty can? Who puts eight great tomatoes in that little bitty can? Who puts eight great tomatoes in that little bitty can? You know who, you know who, you know who. In case you don't, it's Contadina tomato paste. I remember that. Somehow I'd missed that. I've 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 heard a lot of his novelty songs. So yes, he is very famous for that. But he started in the advertising world. And the other one that I remember deeply oh. was he did um, Heinz Great American Soups, which had Ann Miller dancing around her kitchen in a giant production number, talking about how great the soups were. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so he's very into the visual and the big and the broad. Yes. And he brings that to this episode, definitely. Oh, totally. I mean, he has the whole sort of snidely whiplash meets Ebenezer Scrooge thing going on, as we'll find out. So, <laughs> oh, I love that com- that that comparison. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, so that's that's as far as I'm concerned. What's important? We'll talk briefly later about you know props and costumes are always important, but yeah, those are the yeah. big guys for this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only other one I I thought would be interesting is uh, Severn Darden. I didn't look up him up in detail, but I do know that he appears. A couple of de- decades later in a movie called uh, Real Genius with another monkey alum, Monty Landis. Oh, that's right. That's right. How cool. Yeah. Hello? Oh, oh yes, sir. The rent. Well, we... Hello? <laughs> Plaster's falling down. Plumbing don't work. We're two days late on the rent, and he calls up grousing. The episode opens with the phone ringing. Babbitt, who we do not see or hear this time, just sort of a wah, wah, wah voice a la, you know, Charlie Brown, calls exactly. about yeah, calls about the rent, and uh, of course they don't have the rent, and the guys are talking about getting jobs. They consider and then reject some openings in the paper they see for lion tamers and piano delivery men. Uh, Mickey spots the perfect opening for Peter at a toy factory. A toy factory. Needs unskilled help, a non-essential job requiring no training or no experience. Hey, Peter, you don't have any training, and you sure don't have any experience. You're the only one qualified. Probably the only one in the city with those qualifications. At least the only one that can read the ad. Just think they put an ad in the paper to reach me. (laughs) That's right. Why didn't they phone? Peter gets all dressed up for his interview, and the secretary shows him into a room that is totally empty except for... A computer. It's true. And the, when they dress Peter up, it reminds me that Gerald Gardner mm-hmm. uh, told me that he knew he was out of the generation of these kids because when they had a party scene in a later episode, he asked the customer to come to the set and he said, there's a problem. None of these children are wearing sports jackets. And the customer looked at him and said, none of these children wear sports jackets. <laughs> so I look always for where the sports jackets show up. And here he's putting one on, obviously, because for an interview, you would wear that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we see them, like, in their, like, fancy suits in the whole series. I'd, I'd have to go back and check. There might have been a bit in um, in Royal Flush. I'm trying to remember what they were wearing in the um, in the ballroom scene. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. I don't know, because we remember the Errol Flynn part. 
Yes, yes, that's the part that we remember about that. But um, but even for you're right, lounging around the pad, they're wearing essentially suit pants and shirts and ties. And yeah. this is an era before people wore jeans. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. We see start seeing some jeans a little later in the show, and definitely, I'm pretty sure in the romp we see some jeans. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, but, on the beach. Yeah, yeah the on jeans the beach. Feet, right? Yes, but yeah. Um, but also in terms of costumes, it's cute because we do the cut of you know Mickey and the Lion Tamer outfit and all that sort yes. of thing. <laughs> and in terms of hairstyles, this is when we start to notice that Mickey's hair is flat, which is not normal. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's- they didn't think afros should be seen on television on white people. Yeah, yeah. So he had his hair straightened for, as we know, most of the first season and a little bit of the second. It sort of depended on when things were recorded, whether it was before or after that summer tour. So, exactly. Yeah. Another thing that they stabilize in this teaser is we start to see the definitions of who the guys are, because Mickey's clearly the funny one, but mm-hmm. Mike is going to act like a dad, basically totally. a fatherly figure throughout this whole episode. And poor Peter was stuck in the middle in the very beginning. Would he be an idiot savant or just an idiot? Mm-hmm. And in the end, they went for idiot. But I think it's interesting that the prop guys didn't know that up front, so he's staring at a chessboard, yeah. which you would expect a smarter person to do. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and I don't know that he actually, other than maybe the bit at the end, I don't know that he actually comes across as dumb in this episode, more so as naive. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And I got thinking about this because of the premise of the episode, the monkeys, monkey versus machine, monkeys and technology. And I started wondering where us, uh, where we were at with computer technology in uh, 1966. And I learned there were actually a few interesting computer milestones this year that probably had a lot of people in pop culture thinking about technology. First off, in 1966, uh, the Defense Department launched a wide area network called ARPANET. Um, Some of you who are tech nerds know that that is the predecessor network of what eventually grew into the Internet. I have heard that. So in in several senses, 1966 was when this podcast was born. (laughs) There you go. It's the seeds of Zilch. That's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then also in 1966, I read that uh, Catherine Johnson of Hidden Figures fame, excellent movie, you should all see it, was already working at NASA. That's very cool. Yeah. To think of the two things in tandem. Yeah, yeah. And Did then, she go home and watch the monkeys? I don't know. I I don't know enough about her. See, I've seen the movie, but I haven't read her, read their, the book on, the book Hidden Figures. I need to go back and who knows, maybe she was a fan. <laughs> How funny. How funny. It makes you wonder, or God forbid, if she didn't own a TV because they were still expensive. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. But yeah. And then the other third interesting thing, which actually sort of ties into the premise of this episode, was that MIT actually created the first what we would call a chatbot, Eliza, which was a computer that you could actually have uh, conversations with. Huh. Just yeah. like Peter has a type back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And hardware, uh, like computer ha- hardware, the actual computers, was still pretty massive at the time. And the computer we see in Monkeys vs. Machine, all of them weren't actually that different from what was being used in the business world at that time. But um, I will note that even Eliza wasn't intelligent enough to conduct even like that terrible job interview that 
that, that ensues after the credits. And, and, and sort of moving on to that, um, this is our, this scene I think is really our first introduction in the series to naive Peter. And we just, it, he's just so cute and sweet and huggable as, as we hear, um, you know, he, as he gets flummoxed into becoming Mrs. Not What What, uh, and, and, and the interview. To preclude the variable factor inherent in the human equation, we have instituted this new electronic personnel procedure requiring your name, please. What? Thank you. Last name, what? And your first name, Mr. What? It's not what. Not what? Mr. Not what? What? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not my name at all. My name is... Occupation? Peter, you dig? Pete. You dig Pete. Occupation? Pete Digger. <laughs> and your mother's maiden name? Thompson. Mother's name, Thompson. Sex, please. Female, of course. All right, Mrs. Notwat. No, my mother is female. What do you do in your spare time, Mrs. Notwat? Listen, I'm a man. In your spare time, you are a man. No, no, that's not it at all. You, first of all, you got my name wrong. Correction, name misspelled. Please give correct letter. Well, I... Correct letter is I. Name is not Notwat, but Nitwit. <laughs> Brother is also a nitwit. Now, just a minute. That will do, nitwit. Test complete. Interview ended. Application rejected. <laughs> Give me a chance. I'm sorry you're rejected. Why do I have to talk to a machine? Why couldn't I talk to a human being? Because, nitwit, a machine avoids the human error. The human error. The human error. <laughs> Was this kind of sentiment that's kind of through this episode pretty typical about how computers and technology were portrayed in pop culture at the time? I think that's very true because we're in the period where we're afraid, you know, they're get, getting into those stories about computers taking over the world and that mm -hmm. you know, they're smarter than us. And it's uh, that sort of apocalyptic idea of fear. And there's because we have the whole hippie movement and it's about nature and being at one with the earth and all those good things. Computers are the opposite of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me a bit of sort of the theme of uh, Desk Set, that uh, Tracy and Hepburn movie, which was a, a few years before, but there's still sort of that uneasiness and, uh, you know, and kind of concern about what technology is going to do to our lives. That's exactly right. And that was written by, I happen to know, Faye and Michael Kanan, who Michael Kanan is the brother to Garson Kanan, who was married to Ruth Gordon of Rosemary's Baby's fame. Uh, and they wrote, uh, Gordon and Kanan wrote... Adam's Rib and his brother and sister-in-law wrote Desk Set. So Hepburn and Tracy were in both those movies. Oh, wow. I I'm starting to feel like there's like maybe 60 people in all of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And many times, you know, the unions sadly are so full of people. But when you get down to who's really working, it's a small, it's a small town in many ways. Interesting. Yeah. Well, then we get back to the back at the pad after Peter's job interview, and he describes what happened. Uh, happened, and Mike, who I guess either knew something about computers or must have really paid attention in like math class, asks <laughs> Peter to describe step by step what happened, and then he goes to the job interview and totally fries the computer circuits uh, until it until it belches a stack of punch cards. Ask your parents, kids, and just totally melts down. What is your name? Jasmine. It's yours. What? Thank you, Mr. Watt. What's your first name? It's not Watt. Mr. Not Watt Watt. And what is your occupation? Name is not Not Watt. I am computer DJ61. Oh, you're a DJ. Look, I bet you got a great record collection. <laughs> then tell me about your mother and father. My mother was a duplicating machine. Sex? 
gunslinger when you're turned off. Dirty young man. And then enter Stan Freeberg as Mr. Daggert, who declares Mike a genius. Which feeds into the fact that Mike is smart and is the leader of the pack, basically. Absolutely. Um, and here's when he comes to meet the um, owner of the the actual owner of the company. What's cute is this is where we slide in a little political bit because he says, oh, Mr. President, I fully support your war on poverty, which was actually Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. Right. The thing that was going to make him, he created Medicare and Medicaid, and he wanted to be the next Franklin Roosevelt because mm-hmm. he'd grown up in Roosevelt's years. Um, and of course, as we know, sadly, the Vietnam War got in his way and he miscalculated how to manage that. And it pretty much ruined his reputation. Yeah. But at this moment, he was all about poverty. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was actually what I was about to talk to that that very next scene when uh, Stan uh, Freeberg or Daggert, sorry, takes Mike upstairs to meet uh, the president, J.B. Guggins, son of the founder. And it comes very obvious very quickly that Mr. Daggert actually is running the show. And then they uh, go downstairs and Mr. Daggert is introducing Mike to the other computers in the factory in a very hilariously <laughs> literal fashion. They all have mm-hmm. names, which is kind of disturbing. Of yes. <laughs> now, uh, side note, uh, uh-huh. I had friends who used to work at the Hanna-Barbera company. Okay. Uh, he was an IT guy and yeah. they named all the computers there after characters from Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh, that's hilarious. And my dad actually <laughs> worked in computers uh he started not long actually after this era actually in the 1970s and and he would bring punch cards home from work when i was a kid and stuff like that which probably dates me but that's okay <laughs> uh, but but yeah now i'm gonna have to ask him they they named their mainframes back when they still had yeah. those but uh as that was going on kindly old toy inventor pop harper enters to show off his new invention Excuse me, Mr. Daggett, but this will only take a minute. Harper, used to design all our toys, totally useless. I'd fire him like that, but JB promised him his job for life. What are you going to do? Wow, you're all heart. (laughs) (laughs) It's this new toy I have developed. You see, sir, it can assume any shape. Now it's a spiral and, and now a curve. You can turn it into anything but money, eh, Harper? <laughs> but it's a tag Let me make one thing perfectly clear, Harper. Henceforth, all toys in this company will be designed by computers. Is that perfectly clear? No others will be considered. But I don't understand. I gave my whole life to my toys. Your toys are a part of yesterday, Harper. And, uh, so are you. <laughs> Uh, after Dagger dismisses Harper in true snidely whiplash fashion, Harper makes a heartfelt plea to Mike, who can only apologize. This is true. And what this is setting up thematically is what we see across the series, which is that just like the hippie generation, you can't trust anyone over 30, but you can trust anyone over 65. Yeah, yeah, because it's, you know, it's it sounds like, you know, he's just another kindly old grandpa character which we see you know not quite as often as 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 um you know women who need assistance young women who need <laughs> assistance but uh, we do see this this is another theme that we sort of see over and over in the episodes too so yeah yeah there's I some can- there's some talk about how generational the way our personalities jump a generation so that we are more like our grandparents than our parents and the hippie generation felt more like their grandparents because those people had lived through the 20s and the Mm -hmm. whole Zelda Fitzgerald crazy time so it was like they understood each other better I hadn't thought about that but yeah that that makes a lot of sense 
Well, back at the pad, Mike is still brooding, and the guys try to cheer him up by asking, what better place is there to work than a toy factory? And of course, that musical question is answered with the romp for Saturday's Child, featuring lots of scenes of the boys frolicking on the beach with a gaggle of kids. Davy is shirtless on and off throughout this romp, because of course he is. (laughs) Yeah, we have to appeal to the teen magazine. Yeah, I, I think it's a little sad that he's the only one who gets to be shirtless in this one, but we'll get there. Uh, And then at the end of the romp, Mike is still glum and trying to figure out how to help Pop Harper. But then Davey mentions that it should be child's play. And then Mike has an inspiration to try a little bit of sabotage. Exactly. And again, proving that he's the smart guy. Exactly. Exactly. And I got to tell you, those toy tests, those are the highlight of the episode. I love this bit. It's gorgeous. And it's interesting because obviously it's all about the slapstick, but it's also the first time we're going to see all of them except Mike in drag. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he, he makes up for that later. (laughs) (laughs) In Fairdale. Exactly. He does. But it is an interesting, you know, that's kind of an old style of comedy that these guys, Caruso and, and Gardner, are sort of leaning on to get a laugh. Yeah, yeah. And we'll sort of walk you through this, because first Peter dresses up, and I think this might be his only drag appearance in the whole series. I have to go back and look. I believe you are correct. Yeah, he dresses up as the mother of Davy, who distracts all the kids from their toys with his yo-yo. Um, next up is Mickey with Davy as his doting mother, who proceeds to test the durability of the Jack in the Box Blackbird Pie with high explosives. <laughs> We're very much leaning into the Mickey as mad scientist thing still at this point. As bad scientist. And if you think about it, he's the one that they knew had gone to college a little bit and was had studied architecture. So there's True. some level of he had sort of that brainy idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then third up is Peter with Mickey as his mom, who sabotages the test of how quickly the kids can assemble some toy train tracks. And then that ends with all of the kids throwing track pieces at Mr. Daggert, who just is continually melting down throughout this. And and, and at first, the mission seems to be a success. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then they go back into Mr. Guggen's office, and Mr. Daggert almost manages to sort of give the president a bit of a snow job by uh, arguing that the failures were a feature of planned obsolescence rather than a bug. But Mike sees his opportunity to remind Mr. Guggen's of the importance of happiness in toy making. But when he brings in Mr. Harper to show him his, uh, to show Mr. Guggins his toy, he overplays his hand, and Stan Freeberg's suspicions are aroused. He returns to the test room, unmasking Peter and Mickey as co-conspirators, as well as a mother looking on who is definitely not a co-conspirator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, which is another sort of um, trope of, of comedy that you take the heavyset woman and you make fun of her. So. Yeah. It happens. Um, what's yeah. interesting to me about the whole planned obsolescence is that's really a, a conversation of this period in the 60s because we're beginning to think about single-use plastic and all the stuff mm-hmm. that's like, let's get rid of it and let's make things that people have to buy again as opposed to, you know, in the beginning of cars, you made a Model T, you could have driven that for 50 years and, right. of course, car aficionados still do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they started to think we need people to buy more than one car across their lifetime, so we have to make sure things start to break down. 
Yep. And, uh, well, that, that's sort of what seems to be triumphing, because Daggert, uh, after the conspiracy is unmasked, sort of forces Mr. Guggins to fire all concerned, including Pop Harper. Um, yeah. So this is the low point of the episode. Depressed and back at the pad, they're all ready to get rid of this little, this little toy snake that had caused all this trouble, and Mike carefully bends the toy into a boomerang shape. And then both Davy and Mickey unsuccessfully try to throw it away. And then they figure out it comes back when you throw it and return to the factory with their insight. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's a it's team brilliant. effort, which is really one of the themes of the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And after a demo of the toy and a pep talk to Mr. Guggins by the monkeys, he decides to produce the toy, fires Mr. Dag- Daggard, who leaves with a hilarious bah humbug, <laughs> <laughs> and appoints Pop Harper as his general manager. As they brainstorm names for the new toy, Peter closes a window just in time for the monkey rang to come crashing through the glass <laughs> again not being the smartest you know stick in the box yeah there's naive and there's i'm always the dummy and this i, I think that scene really is sort of the birth of the i'm always the dummy <laughs> yeah which is sad but yeah. you know they all had to have their position in the foursome so this is true this is true and it is the end of the episode now and the guys are back at the pad uh and although mike is apparently no longer working for the toy company mr guggins gave them one of their old computers to help them figure out new side gigs to help supplement the music. DJ69 suggests ditch digging, construction, forklift driving, farming, and firefighting, which they try with increasing levels of comedy and exasperation during the romp to last train to Clarksville. And that is the second episode in a row that their first single was featured. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) You actually know how this business works. How's that? been paying attention for a while. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. Yeah, sell, sell, sell. And interesting note before we sort of move on in uh, the Our Favorite Episodes VHS tape that Rhino released back in 1998, Peter actually selected Monkey vs. Machine as his favorite episode. I think that's so cute, but he has a really good part in it, so there's no reason not to. Yeah, and apparently he really enjoyed working with Stan Freeberg, which I can see. Yes, I can imagine that. And it's funny because then that last romp, the other thing they're doing production-wise is, of course, they're reusing the hay footage that comes from um, the Davy Horse episode, which has already filmed but hasn't aired. Right, because that one, if memory serves, go back and watch the uh, uh, listen to the Color Cast commentary episodes to double-check me. But I think that after the pilot, the Don't Look a Gift Horse in a Mouth episode was the first one they actually recorded. Exactly. Dave Evans told me that when I interviewed him, and he was really proud of that fact because he was new into writing television, and he got to be on the set, and he really felt like it was what the show should be about. Yeah, yeah, and and it's another one. uh, They're helping out a kid in that one, but but it's it's another one that sort of has sort of a a a theme of the monkeys helping out, which we see a lot, you know, through the series, but especially during the first season. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, you know, as you mentioned, they're helping a kid in that episode. They're helping an older man in this episode. We're already in the third episode, and we see that everyone is not about Davy falling in love, though that's the reputation. Yes, well, you know, the the thing is, some of the most memorable episodes are that way. So, you know, it's Exactly. Yeah. And the girls loved him, so that's what they remembered. Hence all the shirtlessness and all the romps. (laughs) (laughs) 
too funny. Although I can't remember if I've ever said this before. When I show some episodes of the monkeys to my students, they can't believe when they see the guys without shirts. There's no abs. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody works out in the 60s. Nobody has like all those, you know, defined marks and they're shocked. They think the guys look poor. And I have mm-hmm. to remind them that we're really the generation. They are really the generation that grew up after World War II. Yeah. Yeah. So people aren't eating the crazy kind of food and the amounts of food and they don't have snack machines in their high schools to eat every time they're hungry and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, technically speaking, because I think the boomer generation technically starts in 46, technically speaking, none of them are baby boomers. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and Mike and Davey especially really grew up, you know, in like the post-war period, especially Davey. I mean, you, you read about his childhood and it really was pretty, um, you know, post-war, post-war Britain was an interesting place to be. Let's put it that way. Sure. They had rationing for a long time. Yeah. And, yeah into they the had 50s. To make up for- yeah. yeah. And actually, there's a great book. Oh, my gosh. I have to think of the author. He was a rock and roll um, reviewer for the LA Times for a long time. And he wrote a book about his life, which is called Cornflakes with John, uh, John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And he says that in after concerts, they would sit around in the hotel rooms at like three in the morning and John Lennon would always have cornflakes with whole cream. Because when he was a kid and they were poor in rations, he couldn't get enough milk. And yeah. he knew that it meant you were rich if you could have full cream. Aww. And you were talking about a guy who was already rich and touring and blah, blah, blah. But he still was that little poor kid inside. No, I get it. I think I think all of us are whoever the kid we were inside always. Sadly, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And I also took a little look at uh, TV tropes, which I did in the last episode. And I, I thought I'd take a peek now. And there's a couple yeah. of interesting ones. First, adults dressed as children. Um, everybody except for Mike takes turns dressing as kids in Monkey versus Machines. Um, and then the second thing that emerged is AI is a crapshoot. That's uh, the name <laughs> of that trope. When Peter <laughs> applies for a job in Monkey versus Machi- Machine, he gets confused when the computer interviews him mike later turns the tables on the computer when he uses these this interview as a logic bomb i love tv tropes <laughs> i do oh no those are fun yeah and then the third one third major trope that appeared is new technology is evil and really that's essentially the whole theme of the episode it is and yet if yeah. you think about it modern day teenagers can't live without their modern technology i know and I, i'm really curious i'm hope maybe uh in the uh conversation about this episode on the zilch facebook group if maybe some of our younger podcast listeners could kind of share what they think of this episode watching it you know now kind of from their generational standpoint because in one you know in one sense yes technology is so much more embedded in our lives and their lives than it was even in the 60s but we're still having a lot of these same questions except now it's about like you know facebook algorithms and how we become information literate enough to you know be able to tell accurate news from fake news and those sorts of things or the fact that you mentioned the Eliza and we all are living with Alexa. Yes. It's interesting that they're all, all those artificial intelligence like assistants are all women. Have you noticed that? I have had a problem with that. I've made my ways and other things speak in the male voice because I don't need all the assistants in the world to be women. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me angry. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> Did you turn on Alexa? Because I said her name. We are totally leaving that in the episode. 
<laughs> oh, that's hilarious. But it's true. I mean, that's a really yeah. interesting that that bothers me from a mm-hmm. standpoint of we're uh, we're giving everyone the idea that always a subservient helpful person should have a female voice. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think we all kind of are making our own peace with it not to get like totally off topic, but like I, you know, I have an iPhone so I have Siri, but I don't I we don't have a Amazon Alexa in our house and I don't think we want one, you know. <laughs> Yeah, we I got it easier it to gift. buy, you know, toilet paper or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> now what's funny about all this, though, is and you must have seen this because you're such an excellent librarian. But there's a meme on Facebook that shows a bunch of 50s teenagers hanging out at like, you know, a sort of a Mills Diner place. Mm-hmm. And it says, if you told the teenager in the 50s that someday children would have in their pocket the f- libraries of the entire world and that they would waste their time watching cats play piano, these children would cry. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> nah, I know they probably wouldn't care. But the idea that, you know, they used to go to the yeah. library and yeah. do work and open books. Mm-hmm. And now they just flip open, you know, and say, hey, Google, explain yeah. this to me. And it does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty crazy. But I mean, that's why the so interesting. The, often we say that the monkeys lasted. And you've heard Mickey say this in interviews because the episodes were timeless. They didn't get too involved in politics. They're those little moments. But yeah. they were about these timeless stories. And as you've pointed out. Man Against Machine is one of the most timeless ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it's, there's a reason it wound up in the our favorite episode tape. It's it's one of those ones when people, when te- people talk about their favorite episodes, this is one that comes up a lot. Oh, yeah, sure. Because yeah. it's exactly for the end, because we're still having that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Any other themes that you wanted to cover? Um, I think we covered the whole idea that it's you know, nature versus computers and that stuff. One of the things I think is really cute is, you get a real sense of that in that opening teaser because the first shot is Mike playing the harmonica. And the yeah. harmonica is probably the least technical of all instruments in the world that any person could own no matter how rich or poor they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. I mean, anybody could have it in a pocket. That's why, you know, so many people had harmonicas back then. So Exactly. It goes back to the hobos mm-hmm. and the depression and all of that. So yeah. that's a really interesting tone to start the piece with. It's the, the complete opposite of the machine we're going to meet is this little tiny machine in his pocket. I had not noticed that. But knowing how Rafelson sort of thinks and directs things, I am totally sure that was deliberate now that you point that out. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, kind of from there, springing off into the music of this show, uh, one of the songs as mentioned was Last Train to Clarksville, which we actually covered in our uh, last Monkeys 101 for Monkey See, Monkey Die. And then the other uh, song that was featured in this episode was Saturday's Child, written by David Gates, recorded July 9th, 1966, possibly other dates, but that's the only one they know for sure. Uh, As always, I get this information from uh, Andrew Sandoval's Monkeys Day by Day, which I love. And everybody knows it all. He knows it all, or he can find it out. And, uh, you know, I just hope we get a new edition one of these days because we've had some more albums since then. So we need an update. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) Hoping for an ebook version, too. So, personnel, uh, Mickey Dolans, of course, on lead vocal. Uh, Ron Hicklin and Tommy Boyce were backing vocals. Bobby Hart was organ and backing vocal. Wayne Irwin was guitar and backing vocal. Jerry McGee and Louis Shelton were on guitar. Larry Taylor was on bass. Billy Lewis was drums. Gene Estes played tambourine. Uh, And this uh, appeared on the uh, first to monkey's album as well so fun well you know what i love about the whole david gates connection mm-hmm. 
When David Gates first wrote Diary, he offered it to Mickey. But as we know, Mickey wasn't sure about his own musical career then, so he turned it down and come 30 years later, he put it on his Remember album, which is a beautiful version. Yes, and everybody should buy Remember. It's an excellent album. I agree. Yeah, might be definitely my favorite solo Mickey album. I do. You know what? I like King. This is not obviously this. I love King for the day. Yeah, it's a good one too. It's it's definitely between those two because I'm probably more of a Carol King fan than a Harry Nielsen. I don't know. It's they're both yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there. It's really. I mean, those are the two that I have in my car all yeah. the time, along with my other. Like if I'm listening to something outside of that, I like those two a lot. Yeah. And I've played Diary for my um, TV writing students because it has the perfect third act twist. You know, because it's, yes. it, I play songs often, story songs, because I'm showing that, you know, there's four acts in it, or three acts in a movie or a TV show and something has to change in every act. And so you're listening to that. And you think, you know, what's going on? And then, bam, it's not me, you know, and it's like, oh, you go, oh, that's so sad. But it's totally took you by surprise. Yep. There was some interesting comment uh, commentary in the Monkeys Film and TV Vault, which is an interesting website that y'all should check out. It's um it's been up for a little while. You'll notice it looks a little dated, but it's got great information on it. This version of Saturday's Child uh, used in this segment is alternate to the take that was used on the first album. Um, slightly different vocal parts. I can't hear that sort of thing, but fortunately, we've got you know folks like Craig Smith who you know, can catch those details. <laughs> Snippets from its accompanying musical romp feature- featuring the Monkeys playing with. Children on uh, by the beach and on a playground, swinging on swings and sliding down a slide, are also seen in episode 17, The Case of the Missing Monkey. The clip of the boys seen zooming down the street in their monkey mobile, riding on motorcycles and unicycles with training wheels, which was uh, also used in the first season opening credits. Uh, the final uh, episode, uh, final minutes of episode number eight, Don't Look a Gift Horse in the Mouth, also utilized footage from this romp featuring the cool quartet riding on motorcycles. Uh, repeats of this episode on um, in 1967 uh, added a new song, uh, You Told Me, the album's uh, headquarters introductory track. And when it appeared during the CBS ABC Saturday afternoon run, it was updated again to include another Nesmith tune, Listen to the Band. How fun. Yeah, it's always interesting to see how they sort of updated these as things rolled along. So What they were trying to sell at what time. Exactly, exactly. And so that essentially is what we have for Monkey vs. Machine. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap up? No, I think that's a pretty good coverage of that episode that is a classic. Okay, wonderful. Well, next time we will be discussing your friendly neighborhood kidnappers. To win a contest, the shady manager of a rival band sells the monkeys on a publicity stunt. A phony kidnapping. Another good logline. Another good logline. <laughs> and now I know they're called loglines. And after that, we're still discussing back here, but we may be doing something a little bit different. So stay tuned and we'll let you know more as we get closer. Take care. Bye. Keep watching. Mm-hmm. Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April Conquest and proud of it. 
when not podcasting here at Zilch, a monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not terribly secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand Head either. Hi, fellow Zilch fans. This is Dr. Roseanne Welch, author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture, a book about the enduring significance of the monkeys as a groundbreaking television program, one that introduced audiences to new ideas of political ideology and new concepts of class and feminist theory, a program that challenged the rules of a new medium and paved the way for future innovation. Why the Monkeys Matter highlights the artistic achievements of the show's writers, actors, directors, and other artists, and celebrates all that the monkeys mean to television, to American popular culture, and to us, the fans. Why the Monkeys Matter is available in print and for Kindle, Apple iBooks, and Nook from your favorite bookseller. Find out more at RoseanneWelch.com. R-O-S-A-N-N-E-W-E-L-C-H.com. Once upon a time, in 1967, there were four boys who went on a mind-blowing adventure, and they captured it all on film. When the World and I Were Young, Snapshots from the Collection of Davy Jones, is the story of the Monkees' 1967 summer tour, told through more than 80 never-before-seen images of the Monkees and their friends, including Stephen Stills, Jan Berry, Henry Diltz, and the Jimi Hendrix Experience. When the World and I Were Young is the first project from Along Came Jones Media, available now at Amazon.com. Once upon a time in 1967, there were four boys who went on a mind-blowing adventure, and they captured it all on film. When the World and I Were Young, snapshots from the collection of Davy Jones, is the story of the Monkees' 1967 summer tour, told through more than 80 never-before-seen images of the monkeys and their friends, including Stephen Stills, Jan Berry, Henry Diltz, and the Jimi Hendrix Experience. When the World and I Were Young is the first project from Along Came Jones Media, available now at Amazon.com. We want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you got a hold of a copy of Monkey's Christmas Party. It seems like a lot of people have been getting them. After some of the shipping problems that Target had, we'll be doing a roundtable on the Monkey's Christmas Party CD and so much more to come on future episodes of Zilch. 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 And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit Monkey's audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the Monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs> Don't now. Now really, everybody cool it because I won't be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? 
again. It is not surprising that the Monkeys for Signal single was. The instrumentals for this song was recorded in there and were in court. Uh, the musicians were. Let me grab the book. On the October set. October. Absolutely. I cool. hear kitty meowing. Yes, I hear my kitty meowing too, and I figure we're at the end, so, you know. That's maybe, perfect timing. Yes, maybe you can make an appearance in the outtakes, Jay. Oh, totally should. Totally should. Yep.